Well, if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to Luke chapter 3. We're continuing our series this morning through the book of Luke, which we started this uh, past December. How many of you have had the chance to see the new Star Wars movie yet, Rogue One? A few of you out there? Yeah. I tell you what, man, I just saw it finally this week, and uh, I've been a lifelong Star Wars fan. And if you're a Star Wars fan, you need to see this movie. It is absolutely incredible. It's a great film. And uh, I was just blown away watching this movie because uh, I've loved Star Wars my whole life. You know, when I was a kid, I had all the action figures and everything. And, and, uh, and I've been a fan of Star Wars. But the thing about this movie is this movie, what, what's unique about it, it sets the scene for the original Star Wars series. You know, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. This is the movie that explains why all of that stuff happened. And it's really amazing because I'm sitting there watching this movie and I'm thinking, oh, that makes sense. Now I get it. I understand why, why Luke Skywalker did what he did and where Princess Leia came from and what the Death Star was all about. And it was amazing because I've gone like, what, 30 years of my life not knowing the whole background to why the Star Wars movies were so incredible. And so this movie, Rogue One, explains that backstory about the rebel forces and their fight against the, the uh, Death Star. And, and uh, it's just a really incredible movie. And as I was thinking about this movie, I started thinking about my sermon this morning because the reality is what we're going to be looking at today, the message of John the Baptist that we see here in Luke chapter 3, really is sort of like the groundwork that God laid for us to understand the arrival of the Messiah, which we're going to see next week when Jesus finally steps on the scene to begin his ministry, his adult ministry. And John the Baptist came, as we're going to see this morning, to prepare the way, to give us an understanding of our need for the Messiah and why he came into this world. And so this is a really powerful passage this morning. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I, we, we could really spend two, three solid weeks just on this passage. But uh, because we don't have time for that, what I want to do this morning is really give you the highlights of what John taught us here in terms of his preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So here's what we're going to do. I want to read through this passage together this morning, and then I want to make some observations about what John shares. And specifically, I'm going to point out for you three essential teachings that John gives us in terms of his announcement to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. So if you got your Bibles again, Luke chapter 3, we're also going to have it on the screen behind me. Let's read this together this morning, then we'll come back and make some observations about this incredible passage. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Eturia, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Amen. What an incredible passage we have here highlighting for us the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, as we begin this morning, I want to highlight the first two verses in this passage before I get to really the the meat, the heart of John's message, because these first two verses here in this passage are really interesting. You know, a lot of people come to these historical verses like this in Scripture. You know, uh, John the Baptist, Luke tells us, his ministry started in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor. And then he goes on to list all these other rulers and leaders in the area of Israel during this time. And a lot of people get to these things in Scripture and just kind of skip right over them. But friends, what I want to encourage us to see this morning is that the historical context that Luke provides here is, is literally amazing. It's fascinating when we understand what's going on in this passage in verses 1 and 2. I want to make a couple observations about the historical setting that Luke gives us here. Number one, first thing I want you to notice here, Christianity, friends, is a faith that is rooted in history. It's a faith that is rooted in history. Look at Luke's account of Jesus Christ is a true story. Okay, it has historical substance. It was rooted in a real time, in a real place where real people lived, where he names historical figures that we can go back and verify whether these things were true, whether they really happened. Luke here in this account, he lists seven men, all prominent historical figures of that day and age. And friends, here's the thing. We know about these guys, even from extra-biblical sources. We know their names. We know their dates. We know the stories about what they did with their lives. We have archaeological confirmation for all of them except for one, Lysanias. We don't know much about him, but all the rest of them, we found archaeological verification that these were real historical people. What's the big deal about that? Friends, understand this. Luke isn't asking us to believe a fairy tale here. Okay, this isn't like Aesop's fables or something. Luke is telling us a historical account of a real God who really came into the real world to reveal himself to us. This isn't like the the Vikings and the story of Odin and Valhalla, you know, the mythology that you read about, right? This was real history that we can go back and look at and verify. 
Now this is far different, friends, the history that we see here in Christianity. This is, this is far different from what we have in other religions. In fact, when you go back and study the background of other religions, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, friends, do you know we don't have any historical sources for any of those guys until a hundred or more years, sometimes hundreds of years after their lives. But Luke was writing a historical account within the lifetime of the people who lived it, who saw it. He's talking about real things. And we can verify all of this historically. This is just awesome to me because what it tells me is, you know what? Christianity isn't a blind faith. God's not asking us to just like take a leap out into the dark and hope that this is all true. No, Christianity is a real faith rooted in history that we can be confident in and trust. The second observation I want to make on this introduction here, not only is Christianity a faith rooted in history, but Christianity, number two, is a faith founded upon God's sovereign promises. Now, this is absolutely incredible. We've talked about Bible prophecy here many times, especially recently in regards to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the 300 Old Testament prophecies pointing to the coming of the Messiah. But one of the most fascinating verses in the whole Bible, friends, is found right here in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Isn't that fascinating? Friends, this is one of the most incredible verses in the whole Bible, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. What's so significant about that? Friends, when you understand the power of this verse, it's going to blow you away in terms of understanding God's sovereign promises as the basis, the foundation upon which our faith is built. We know from history that Tiberius Caesar began his co-regency with Caesar Augustus. So they were joint rulers in 11 AD. In 11 AD, he became joint Caesar with Caesar Augustus. Luke tells us in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, 11 AD plus 15 years brings us to what? 26 AD, right? So Luke is writing about events that took place in 26 AD. Big deal. So what? Friends, about 500 years earlier, the prophet Daniel was in Babylon. And in Daniel 9.25, God gave Daniel a prophecy that he was going to send the Israelites back home out of exile and let them go back to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. In Daniel 9.25, we read this incredible prophecy. Daniel receives this prophecy that says, Know this, from the issuing of the decree to return and restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, or some translations say until Messiah the prince comes, Daniel's prophecy says there will be 62 sevens and seven sevens. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. 62 sevens and seven sevens. In Bible prophecy, when it refers to sevens, what it's talking about there is a seven-year period. Okay, we have a week of seven days. In Bible prophecy here, this is referring to a week of seven years, a seven-year period. Daniel gets this prophecy from God that says there's going to be 62 sevens and seven sevens. Friends, what's 62 plus seven? 69. Daniel's prophecy says there's going to be 69 seven-year periods from the issuing of the decree to go back and restore Jerusalem until the Messiah comes. Okay, Friends, God couldn't have gotten any more specific here. Right? 
69 times seven is 483 years. Now we know when the decree to return to restore and rebuild Jerusalem took place. It's found in Ezra 7:11. King Artaxerxes rules that the Jews should be freed from captivity to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now we know both from scripture and extra biblical sources that Artaxerxes' decree took place in 457 BC. Daniel's prophecy said that 483 years would go by from the issuing of the decree to return and restore Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, Messiah the Prince. 457 BC, add 483 years to that, what does it take you to? Takes you to 26 AD in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. What took place in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? John the Baptist came on the scene. And as we're going to see next week, not only did John the Baptist come on the scene in 26 AD, but Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the prince, arrived and began his public ministry. Friends, is that incredible? I mean, if that doesn't blow you away, I don't know what will, right? Christianity is a faith that is founded upon God's sovereign promises. Almost 500 years earlier, God had told us when to watch for the Messiah. He's coming, 26 AD, watch for it. And John shows up in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, 26 AD. And as we're gonna see next week, Jesus comes on the scene, 26 AD. Friends, all of this was part of God's prophetic plan. And here's the thing, when you understand this, if we can trust God's actions in the past, and if we can see the fulfillment of his promises in the past, friends, can we not also trust that God's promises to act in the future are true as well? Friends, do you understand that? 90% of the Bible's prophecies have already been fulfilled. The other 10% that haven't yet been fulfilled are in reference to the second coming of Jesus. If God's been faithful in fulfilling 90% of the prophecies in the past, why should we not trust that God's prophecies that he's coming back one day are also true? Friends, our faith is rooted not only in history, but on the sure hope of God's faithful promises. And this, friends, is really why John the Baptist's message that we're going to look at today is so important for us. The spiritual truths that John proclaims here in Luke chapter 3, that he proclaimed to the people of Israel 2,000 years ago, are as significant and meaningful for us today as they were back then. Friends, John preached a real God who really acts in history, a God with real expectations for his people, but a God who also offers us a real hope to experience new life in a relationship with him through the Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. Now this morning what I want to do is I want to look at the three essential teachings of John here in Luke chapter three. And as I said, we're really just gonna scratch the surface of the, the depths of the riches in this passage. But, but there are three essential truths that we need to draw out of John's message because these are the messages, <laughs> this is the message that John proclaimed 2,000 years ago that I will tell you, friends, is as absolutely relevant for today for us as it was back then. John proclaimed three essential spiritual needs for all men and women. Three essential spiritual needs for all men and women. Do we have that slide? The first thing we see here in our passage 
in verses 3 through 6, we find that John preached the need for new life. Friends, we need a new life. This was the message that John proclaimed to the Israelites. This is the message that is absolutely essential for us to understand this morning. We need a new life. John's mission was to pave the way for the Messiah. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah. Luke, here in chapter 3, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Luke declares that John came to prepare the way for the Lord to announce the arrival of the coming king. Friends, in the ancient world, whenever an emperor or a king would travel, he would send his servants ahead of them, and they would announce to the people coming, prepare the way. The king is coming. Get out of the way. We're going to level the roads. We're going to clear the path. We're going to make the way straight because the king is coming. And in the same way, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the world for the arrival of the Messiah, the coming of the king. But here's the thing, friends. John wasn't so concerned with preparing a physical path. He was called to prepare the hearts of people spiritually to receive God's promised one. And so John preached a message of repentance. He preached a message of repentance. And John's baptism was an outward sign of one's commitment to turn their hearts to God Verse 3 of, chapter, of Luke chapter 3, John went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins because we need a new life. We need to repent for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I want you to think about this. This is really interesting when you understand this first piece of John's message. Centuries earlier, God had brought the Israelites to the Jordan River to prepare them to enter into the promised land. It was sort of a national baptism. And now, through John, God was once again calling the Israelites back to the Jordan River. But this time, to be baptized individually. This time, to repent of their sins in preparation, not to enter the promised land, but to enter into the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting that all of this took place at the Jordan River? God preparing the hearts of his people. And friends, the essence of John's message to Israel was basically this. John says to Israel, God's about to act, friends. God is about to act. Are you ready? Are you ready? Now that's a good question for us to consider this morning. When God is about to act, are you ready? Are you ready for God's move in history? Are you ready for when God acts? You know, here's the deal. When God moves, friends, you want to be sure you're on his side. And John is calling the Israelites, God's about to act. Are you ready? How do we get ready? John says you need a new life. You need a new life. There must be a change in your heart. And John preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John says you need a new life. You need a change of heart. You need to repent and receive forgiveness for your sins. The word repentance, friends, it's an interesting word. Repentance simply means to change course. 
Repentance means you're moving in one direction and you're going the wrong way. You're going against God's will for your life. And God says, look, I'm putting up a warning sign and you better turn around and go the other way and change course. That's what repentance is. And John, friends, he was like a big warning sign God put up right in the middle of the Judean wilderness to warn the people of Israel, it's time to change course. You need to change your heart. You need to repent of your sins and get your life back on God's path or you're going to be in trouble. This last spring, my family and I, we were out in uh, Cannon Beach, Oregon. I was teaching at a Bible school out there. And uh, there's, a national, there's a state park there called E. Cola State Park. It's a really incredible state park right on the cliffs in Oregon. And there's, you know, these huge cedar trees that are 1,000 years old, this, this rainforest. It's just an, it's an incredible setting. One afternoon during our free time, we went and we went on a hike back through the mountains and the pass through this state park right along the coast. It, it was an incredible, beautiful place. This deep, dark jungle, you know, of, you know, thousand-year-old cedar trees that reach up to the skies. It was just awesome. And we're hiking these steep trails and paths winding along the coastline through the woods. And we were hiking down this dirt path, and all of a sudden we came to a sign in the middle of the path, a big yellow sign that the National Park Service had put up, and it said, warning, turn around, mudslide ahead. Now I'm looking at this sign in the middle of the road, in the middle of the path, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I really want to keep going because I'd been down this path before and I wanted to take my family. There's an incredible beach at the end of this path and I wanted to get to there and show my family this incredible, this incredible place. And so I'm looking at this warning sign that's telling me to turn around, to go back. And, and so of course I do what any responsible father would do. I say to my family, I'll just ignore that sign. It's no big deal. I've been here before. We can make it. And so we walked around the warning sign and we kept going down the path. And sure enough, we didn't get very far when the path started getting really precarious. It had been washed out by flooding. And we just kept working our way through, you know, this this path that really didn't even exist anymore. And all of a sudden, we turned a corner and we came to a sheer drop-off. Probably 20, 30 feet deep, the whole path had been washed away by a flood, by a mudslide. And if we would have attempted to go any further, friends, we would have been in big trouble. Now, here's the deal. Did the park service put that warning sign up in the path to kill our joy, to ruin our day, to squelch our enthusiasm for reaching this, you know, cool beach? Did did, did they do that because they didn't want us to enjoy ourselves? No. The park service put that warning sign up in our path because they wanted us to enjoy the park to its full, but in a way that was safe, in a way that would, it, we would experience the, the fullness of it in, in, in joy and safety and make it home alive at the end of the day, right? And friends, in the same way, when God gives us his revealed truth in Scripture, when he reveals his will for us in terms of how he wants for us to live our lives, when he says, warning, don't go that way, there's danger down that road, right? When God establishes his guidelines and boundaries for our lives, he doesn't put these warning signs up because he wants to squelch our joy or ruin our fun in life. No, he puts these warning signs up because he knows what will help us experience life to the maximum, right? And he knows that there are paths that we can walk in this life that will lead us nowhere good. And here's the deal, friends. You can get away ignoring God's warning signs for a while, right? You can do what I did. You can walk around that sign. You can ignore it. God says, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't do, right? You can ignore it. And you might get away with it for a while. 
But I'll tell you something, you're never going to have peace from doing that. You're always going to be looking over your shoulder. You're always going to be wondering when the consequences are going to kick in. And the reality is the consequences usually do kick in sometime when we stray against God's will. And if they don't kick in in this life, they're certainly going to kick in in the next life. But the reality is when God establishes his guidelines and boundaries for us, he does it because he wants what's best for us. And so John the Baptist, he put forth a warning sign in the middle of the Judean wilderness saying, repent, change your life, turn course, get back on God's path. You need a change of heart. So what about you this morning? Do you need to change course in your life? Do you need to change the priorities of your heart today? Is it time to get back on track with God? See, this was the first essential truth of John's teaching. We need a new heart. And if we need to turn and repent and turn back to God, if we've been straying off God's path, you know, the good news is God provides an answer, a solution for us. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us of our sins, he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Friends, if you've been going down the wrong trail and God is saying, look at you are going nowhere fast. You're going down a path that's gonna lead to death and chaos and pain and misery if you keep walking that way. Friends, if you will simply acknowledge your rebellion against God, Confess your sins, turn to him, change course. God will forgive you. He'll set you on a new path, the path that leads to life. So why not? Why wouldn't you do that? It's God's offer for new life for all of us. The second essential spiritual truth that John tells us that we all need, not only do we need a new life, but we need a new lifestyle. We need a new lifestyle John here in verses 7 through 14, he tells the Israelites, look at judgment is coming, friends. Judgment is coming. God is not only on the move, but he's on the move against sin and rebellion. And his judgment is coming. You know, I I hear a lot of people, they ask the question, you know, Jason, why, why does God allow suffering and evil? You know, why doesn't God just get rid of all the suffering and evil in our world? Friends, here's the thing. You need to understand this. God is patient, all right? 2 Peter 3.9 says God is patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so, yes, God does allow suffering and evil to go on for a time because he's a patient God who wants all of us to turn in repentance to him and be saved. But here's the deal. His patience will not last forever, Because he's also a just God. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. And John proclaimed to the Israelites, look at you need to repent. You need to turn course. You need a new life because judgment is coming. John rebuked the people for their sins and he had called them to align their lives with God because he knew that God was about to act. And when he did, part of his acting was judgment. And I'll tell you something, friends, this is an essential part of sharing the gospel with non-believers. We need to preach the reality of God's justice and our sin and his holiness and the reality that, you know what, God will judge sin one day. He will judge sin one day. And there is a place of eternal judgment called hell. And you better get your life on the right path with the Lord because these things are real, friends. 
Now here's the deal. A lot of churches won't preach that message today because it's not popular. Some of you don't want to hear that message this morning. But if I stood up here and didn't tell you faithfully the warning that John gave the people, the warning that Scripture gives us, that God is a holy God, that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, and if we don't receive God's salvation, judgment is coming against us. If I didn't proclaim that message to you, friends, I would not be doing my duty faithfully as one called by God to preach his word. And so we do preach the reality of sin and judgment and hell here at Lakes Free. We tell you the truth about that because it's God's truth. I have to do that. But here's the deal. We don't revel in those things. We don't glory in those things. Like, like Francis Schaeffer once said, the doctrines of judgment and hell must be taught with tears. And friends, we proclaim the reality of God's judgment with tears. It breaks our heart. It breaks the heart of God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. But friends, if we do not embrace him and change course and turn our hearts to him, we will face the reality of God's judgment. I've had people ask me, Jason, how bad is hell? Friends, I'll tell you something. Hell is so bad that it costs the Son of God his very life to keep you from going there. That's how bad. God gave his very life to keep you from going there. And so John, he warns us judgment is coming. He warns us that we need to repent. But here's what John goes on to say. He says that genuine repentance in our lives is going to be evidenced by fruit. It's going to be evidenced by fruit. And what that is, is it's a life that increasingly is lived in harmony with God. And we see John highlight a number of examples to the tax collectors, to the soldiers. But John basically says, look at here, if you want to walk with God, you got to walk with God. That's what repentance is about, right? This isn't rocket science, all right? If you're going to turn and walk with God, you got to walk with God. That's genuine repentance. It's a change of course. It's getting off your path and getting onto God's path and following him, right? John says your repentance should be evidenced by fruit. Now, here's the thing. It's absolutely unbiblical to say that somebody's been saved but hasn't changed, Okay? This, this is what James is getting at in that well-known passage, James 2.26. James says, faith without works is dead. Right? James isn't saying that we're saved by our works. You're not saved by your works. You can't save yourself by your works. But what James is saying is when we put our faith in Christ, when we receive the free gift of salvation that Christ offers us, that genuine repentance, genuine receiving of our salvation in Christ will produce fruit in our lives. We'll see evidence of that salvation in our lives. Let, let, me, let me give you an example that might help illustrate this for you. Friends, when you walk into a dark room and you flip the switch, you expect the light to come on, Right? You flip the switch, the light should come on. And if no light comes on, you can rightly assume that something's wrong. And it would be logically inconsistent to say that the light is on when the room is pitch black. Because light will always dispel the darkness. And in the same way, what John is saying here, when he calls us to repent and show the evidence of that repentance by the fruit in our lives, what John is saying is, he's saying, look, when a darkened heart repents and turns to God, it's going to get illuminated. 
right? Your priorities are gonna change. Your desires are gonna change. Your outlook is gonna change. But here's the thing, friends. If the darkness continues to dominate your life, you have to wonder, did the light ever really come on? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute here, Jason, all right? Come on now. Let's get serious here. I I grew up in the church, Jason, all right? I mean, my family goes back as far as I can recall. All Christians, Jason. I I was baptized as an infant. I went to confirmation. I go to summer camp, Christian summer camp every year. Come on, Jason, are you telling me I need to repent? Friends, you know what? That's the same argument the Israelites made to John. Look at verse 8 in your Bible. John says, the the Israelites came to John. He was preaching repentance, change your heart, change your life. No, John, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're all good. We're the chosen people, John. That was the Israelites' argument. But friends, I'm going to tell you something. God is not impressed with your heritage. If that's what you're hoping for as the basis of your life being right with God, you're in big trouble. I'm a fourth-generation pastor, friends. All right, My great-great-grandfather was a circuit-riding evangelist with the Salvation Army in Sweden. My great-grandfather was a pastor in upstate New York. My grandfather was a pastor for 50 years in California, Minnesota. My dad was a world-famous, world-renowned evangelist and apologist. Friends, I'll tell you something. God could care less if I'm basing the hope of my salvation on my heritage. God's not impressed with your heritage, and he's not impressed with your religion either. What God wants from his people is a repentant heart, a life that pursues holiness, a life that increasingly walks in conformity with God's will and priorities for us. And friends, when this happens, the evidence is gonna be there. You might remember that old Wendy's commercial, you know, where's the beef? Right? Friends, in the same way, if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, where's the fruit? The fruit's going to be there. Now, here's the deal God calls us to a new lifestyle, He calls us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But here's the thing He doesn't expect you to become the produce section over at Brinks Market overnight. All right? Okay? Don't, don't think like, hey, look, I should be overflowing with fruit overnight if I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not the case. Friends, keep in mind, where does fruit come from? It grows, right? Fruit grows. That's where we get it. It grows. And so understand this. There will be a process of growth in your life. And some of us will have more fruit than others. And, and maybe your fruit is growing at a different rate than your brother sitting next to you. But if you're walking with God, it's going to be obvious because there will be fruit. So John says here in Luke, Luke chapter 3, we need a new life, we need a new lifestyle. But thirdly, friends, and this is the good news, this is, this is where this message gets really good. We need a new life giver. We need a new life giver. See, th- th- this is the good news in this whole, whole passage this morning. God doesn't expect us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Okay? And so the message of John the Baptist wasn't just try harder, do more, quit being such a screw-up. No, John proclaimed the gospel. Look at verse 18. John, with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. He preached the good news. That's the gospel. 
The good news, friends, is not that he was the promised one, but he was just the appetizer. The promised one was still coming. And when he comes, man, you think the message I'm proclaiming is good? No, when he comes, he's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And you want to talk about a transformed life, wait till he comes. The Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. Jesus is the one who's going to make all of the above possible. New life, a new lifestyle. It happens with Jesus Christ. And so as you're sitting there thinking to yourself, you know, you want a new life? You want a new lifestyle? You need the new life giver. You need the new life giver. It's through Jesus that we receive the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to experience new life. You know, I, a lot of people, they come and they say, Jason, I, I'm struggling. I, I can't break this habitual sin in my life. Friends, draw close to Jesus. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers us. You know, is there a relationship in your life that's been, it's been broken? Maybe you think it's been broken beyond repair. Friends, the Holy Spirit will empower you and can transform that relationship if you'll draw close to him. Maybe there's someone in your life that you've been hoping to share the gospel with, but you're, you're scared, you're intimidated, you just don't even know how to start. Friends, draw close to Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you. He'll do that because that's what he does. Jesus, John 10, 10 says, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. In Acts 1, 8, he told his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. If you remember last year, we talked about that word, dunamis, power. It means dynamite in the Greek. You're gonna receive this dynamic spiritual power. Paul in Ephesians 1, 18 through 19 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be open so that you can know the incomparably great power for us who believe. This is what we have access to, friends, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the things that we can't do on our own. But here's the deal. To access this power, you need Jesus. You need the new life giver, and you need to draw close to him. Look what Jesus himself says about this in John 15, 4 through 5. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now friends, I want you to understand what a revolutionary message this is. Okay, there's nothing like this anywhere in the world, in no other religion, and no other philosophy. What is religion? Religion is about your works trying to make your life right with God through your good works, through your sacrifices, through your rituals, through your money. Religion says work harder, do more, try harder, and maybe you're in the right to have a relationship with God. But Christianity says, no, the Messiah has come, and he's offered us new life, and he says, look, it draw close close to me, and I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you the resources to do the things that you can't do on your own. It's not about you trying harder. It's about me coming into the world and providing the power for you, number one, to be transformed spiritually, to have new life, but then number two, to experience an ongoing transformation by the bearing of fruit that the Holy Spirit will empower you to produce in your life. You can't do that on your own. Get in the vine, friends. Draw near to the source of life. This is an incredible message. 
You won't hear this anywhere else in the world. I guarantee you, you can search every other religion out there, and there is nothing remotely close to this anywhere in the world. That the God who made you broke into human history to give you new life and to empower you to live life and life to the full and to experience freedom from bondage to our sins and to experience the transformational power that the Holy Spirit gives us. It's absolutely incredible. Man, if you're thinking, man, I don't know, I'm not a very thankful person today. Friends, when you recognize what God did for you, we should be overflowing with thanksgiving. Praise God for all he's done, for his gift of goodness and faithfulness and grace and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. John proclaimed the good news that God so loved the world that he was sending his son. Next week, we're going to see Jesus arrives on the scene so that you could receive new life and walk in a relationship with your creator. The great message of the gospel is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The apostle Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not about your works. It's not about you boasting in what you have done. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, you're saved by grace through faith, not works. You're saved by grace through faith so that God can produce good works in you. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that John proclaimed. You need a new life, you need a new lifestyle, but to get that, you gotta get close to the new life giver. And he offers you that as a free gift. And I hope you've received that gift. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message this morning. We thank you for the words of John the Baptist preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah, Lord. And I pray that as we look at this message that we too would prepare our hearts to receive the coming Messiah. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that that needs to change course this morning to turn their life to you, I pray that they would do that, Lord. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who's been straying from your path and and maybe they're they're concerned that their, their life has taken a wrong turn, Lord, turn them back to you, Lord. Help them to call you to receive the forgiveness that you offer them and then to experience the empowerment of your Holy Spirit which produces new life within us, new growth within us, new fruit within us, Lord. And God, we just are so grateful for this incredible gift, for your mercy, for your faithfulness. Help us rejoice in that today. Lord, if there's somebody here who's just, they're dealing with struggle, they're burdened, Lord, they're, they're hurting, and they woke up this morning, and they're just thinking, I don't have much to be thankful for. God, let them rejoice in the fact that there's a God who loved them so much that he came into this world to give them new life, and that they can draw near to him and experience his empowerment. Lord, I just pray that we would all know that power that comes from being in the vine, drawing close to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me leave you with this benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and every word. Amen.